Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you P.D. James's Adam Dalgleish in A Taste for Death, where Dalgleish investigates two bodies found murdered in a London church. This will be a two-part series. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. Some can gaze and not be sick, but I could never learn the trick. There's this to say for blood and breath. They give a man a taste for death. John? Adam Dalgleish. Sir? Well, the Commissioner's had a word with the Home Office. This one's ours. Ours? But the new squad isn't officially up and running till Monday week. I know, but a government minister with his throat cut. That's exactly the sort of high-profile case we're meant for. We have been commissioned early. Government minister? I thought he'd resigned. Ex-minister then, perhaps even ex-MP. It's still ours. I take it division ashore. The body really is, Sir Paul Barone. One of the bodies, John. Don't forget the tramp. Yes, it's Barone, all right. The parish priest knew him. Apparently it wasn't the first time Barone had spent the night in his church vestry. Incidentally, you'd better alert Inspector Miskin. Oh, Kate's off today, sir. I'll get her at her flat, and I'll rally the rest of the team. Fine, I'll meet you outside. Fifteen minutes. You knew him, sir, didn't you? Uh, Barone, I mean. I liked him. When did you last see him? A couple of weeks ago. He asked me to call on him in the department. I could never see Paul Barone without being reminded of the portrait of his ancestor, Sir Hugo, in the National Portrait Gallery. The likeness was almost uncanny. The same long-boned face, high cheekbones, widely spaced eyes, the same steady but slightly ironic gaze. Read that, he said, and handed across a sheet of paper. The printed message didn't beat about the bush. Women should beware of the transport minister. His first wife was killed in a car accident. He was driving. Teresa Nolan, who nursed his mother, killed herself after an abortion. The naked body of Diana Travers, his domestic, was found drowned at his wife's Thameside birthday party. Three deaths. Proximity to the elegant baronet can be lethal. I looked at him. Any idea who could have sent this? None. But it's close to an accusation of murder. It's actionable. I handed it back. Has this been sent to anyone else? Sir Paul opened his desk drawer. At least one journal's had it. This is the current edition of the Paternoster Review. The magazine had been running a series of articles on members of the government. It was Sir Paul Barone's turn. It started innocuously enough... His successful political career and how he lived with his second wife in the family home shared with his mother, Lady Ursula. It spoke of his daughter by his first marriage, Sarah Barone, who was active in left-wing politics. But when it turned to his second marriage, it became unpleasantly snide. His elder brother, Major Sir Hugo Barone, had been killed in Northern Ireland. Shortly afterwards, Paul's wife died in a car accident, and within five months, Paul had married his brother's fiancée, finding consolation, as the paper put it, in the beautiful, bereaved Barbara. 
but the real sting lay in the final paragraph, its origin unmistakable. Women close to him have been singularly unlucky. His first wife died in a car smash while he was driving. Teresa Nolan, a young nurse caring for his mother, killed herself after an abortion, and four weeks ago a young girl who worked for him, Diana Travers, was found drowned following a party he threw to mark his wife's birthday. "'They're wrong about that, you know,' he said. "'I didn't arrange that birthday party. Barbara did. And in the end I couldn't make it. I wasn't there.' Do you know what happened? I gather that Dominic Swain, that's Barbara's brother, wasn't invited. So in a fit of pique he threw his own party and included Diana Travers among the guests. Then some of them went for a midnight swim, and Diana drowned. I looked across at him. What do you want me to do? Barone smiled. Do you know, I'm not exactly sure. Keep a watching brief, I suppose. Do you think all this scandal could have led to his suicide? What suicide? All we've got at the moment are two corpses lying in a church vestry with their respective throats cut. One of them's a Paul Barone, the other a nameless tramp. Well, nameless at the moment. Come on, let's make a start. I wasn't surprised that Kate Miskin had beaten us to the scene. Bodies are through here, sir. They call it the little vestry. The little vestry was garishly lit, and the whole bizarre scene looked unreal. Barone's sprawled body and severed throat, the clotted blood, the tramp, propped like a marionette against the wall. The bodies, Kate told me, had been found by an unlikely pair of companions. Sixty-five-year-old Miss Emily Wharton, a regular churchgoer, and ten-year-old Darren Wilkes. Theirs was a strange friendship. Some months before, Darren had attached himself to Miss Wharton, and now they met regularly every Wednesday and Friday when she came to replace dead flowers in the vase before the statue of the Virgin. It was 8.45 on the morning of Wednesday, the 18th of September, when the two of them approached the south door, the one to which Miss Wharton had the key. But to her surprise, she found the heavy iron-bound door unlocked. Kate said that as Miss Wharton felt for the light switch, Darren scampered past her. He liked to light a candle when they arrived, thrusting his thin arm through the grill that separated the passage from the church nave so as to reach the candle holder and the coin box. Early in their walk, she'd given him the usual tenpy piece, and she heard the faint tinkle as it fell into the box. Now a faint smell, alien yet horribly familiar, came to her nostrils, and suddenly she knew that something was dreadfully wrong. Gently at first, and then with one sudden movement she opened the door to the little vestry, and she saw the horror itself. Two bodies lay like butchered animals in a waste of blood, their throats cut. She sent Darren to fetch Father Barnes. Five minutes later the priest arrived. He stood staring at the scene. Do you know them, Father? Oh, yes, yes, the tramp, that's Harry Mack. Poor Harry sleeps in the porch sometimes. And the other? The other is Sir Paul Barone, MP. Until a few days ago, a government minister. Well, Kate? Murder followed by suicide, I'd say. Harry Mack has one clean slash. Barone shows the classic pattern of self-inflicted wounds. Three cuts, 
Two tentative, the third severing the trachea. Seems obvious. Yes, perhaps too obvious. Look at that blanket. Barone must have clutched at it as he fell. It's half dragged off the bed, all bunched up on his right side. What of it? Look, look at the razor. It's lying on top of it, just by his right hand. He couldn't have dragged the blanket while holding the razor. No. He'd have dropped the razor first. So why should it be lying on top of the blanket? While waiting for the team to arrive, John Massingham and I pulled on latex gloves and took a look round the little vestry. What we found confirmed my growing conviction that this was a murder scene. In the grate lay a partially burned diary. Among the fragments of blackened paper lay a used match, but the box it came from was nowhere to be found. On the ancient oak desk lay a pink blotter that seemed almost as old as the desk itself, but superimposed on the faded markings were blottings that were clearly very recent. I went over to Barone's jacket. Inside was an elegantly slim fountain pen. It should be possible for the lab to match the ink with that on the blotting paper. But if Barone had been writing, where was the paper now? Had he himself disposed of it? Or had someone else found it, perhaps even come specifically in order to find it? Lastly, Massingham and I went through into the kitchen. A tea towel hung by the sink. I peeled off my gloves and felt it. Damp all over. As if it had been soaked, wrung out, and left to dry. Well, the murderer would have had to have washed his hands and arms. Above the sink was a simple glass shelf. On it lay a sponge bag. With my gloves back on, I opened it. Inside was a narrow leather case with the initials PSB stamped in faded gold. I lifted the lid and found what I'd expected. The twin to the cutthroat razor lying so incriminatingly close to Barone's right hand. I thought these went out with Sweeney Todd. Who on earth uses them these days? Darren was still waiting in the police car. He looked up at me with bright, suspicious eyes. She never did it, Miss Wharton. She's innocent. We never thought she did. That's all right, then, he said. It's lucky you were together when you found the bodies, I said. Turned her up proper, said Darren. She don't like blood. I went to fetch Father Barnes. John, I want you to go home with Darren. Something that boy's keeping back. See if you can get to the bottom of it. Sir? Father Barnes was sitting bolt upright, staring at the gleaming curve of the apse. When did you first meet Sir Paul Barone? Last Monday, just over a week ago. He called at the vicarage and asked if he could see the church. We keep it locked, you see. He said he'd always wanted to see St Matthew's. So you gave him the key? Well, he was away for about an hour. When he came back, he said he'd like to sleep that night in the little vestry. He'd noticed the bed. It an odd request. Did he give any reason? No. He made it sound quite ordinary. So at about eight o'clock that evening he turned up carrying a hold all, and I gave him the key. The following morning I went to the little vestry. The bed had been made up. Everything was very tidy. So I went into the church and he was sitting in this row a little further along. There were just the two of us. He took communion. Afterwards we walked together to the little vestry, and he left. And that was all on this first visit? 
not quite. When I placed the wafer in his hands, yes, I thought I saw there were marks, wounds, on his wrists, stigmata. Evidence of an intense religious experience. Have you told anyone else about this? Only you. Then please don't. Only imagine the effect if this were to become public. It isn't even necessary to refer to it in your statement. If you need to confide in anyone, tell your bishop. During the following week, Barone resigned from the government and announced his intention of leaving the Commons as well. Yesterday morning, he'd rung Father Barnes, asked to spend the night in the church again, and arranged to pick up the key at six o'clock that evening. He'd arrived promptly, carrying the same holdall. The next thing I knew was when young Darren came for me and told me there were two dead bodies in the little vestry. I asked him to tell me about Harry Mack. Poor Harry was a problem for St Matthews. For some reason, he'd taken to sleeping in the south porch, bedded down on newspapers and covered with an old blanket. Perhaps, said Father Barnes. He'd already settled down under his blanket when Barone arrived, and Barone had asked him in out of the cold to share his meal. I asked Father Barnes if he'd told anyone that Sir Paul was spending the night in the church. Oh no, there was no one to tell. No one knew anything about him, not until this morning. Ah, Inspector Miskin. Kate, I want you to break the news to Sir Paul's family. Yes, sir. There's a wife. And an elderly mother, Lady Ursula, oh, and a housekeeper of sorts. Take it easy with you. When the news breaks, they may need protection. that Hugo had been killed in Northern Ireland. So to my present grief was added a grief for Hugo, as keen, as new as when I'd first heard of his death. I suddenly developed a raging thirst. Matty brewed me pot after pot of strong coffee, which I gulped down scalding hot. After a while, the physical symptoms subsided. Your shawl, Lady Ursula. Ah. Here, let me. Stop fussing, Matty. I'm perfectly all right now. Please leave me alone. Yes, go away. Oh, and bring Mr. Lampart up to me as soon as he arrives. Of course, Lady Ursula. I sat thinking. There is a world outside this pain. I shall take hold of it again. I must survive. Seven years. Ten at the most. That's all I need. So I must husband my strength. This meeting with Stephen. There are things I have to say, and there might not be much time. Mr. Lampard, my lady. Ah,、oh, Stephen. Oh, please、ah. don't stand up, Lady Ursula. You, you mustn't. 
You're due for a hip replacement, aren't you? I'm on the waiting list. Ah, forgive me, but aren't you suffering unnecessarily? Why not go private? I'm not in favour of buying privilege. I prefer to be treated on the National Health Service. But I haven't called you here for a professional opinion. <laughs> Which, as an obstetrician, I wouldn't in any case be competent to give. <laughs> Lady Ursula, this news about Paul is horrifying. Unbelievable. Shouldn't you have sent for your own doctor? Or a friend? You should have someone with you at a time like this. I have Matty. At 82, the few people one might wish to see are all dead. And I've outlived both my sons. That's the worst thing that can happen to a human being. I have to endure it, but I don't have to talk about it. I could have added least of all with you. It seemed to me that the words unspoken hung between us. Underneath his pattern of professional success, I thought Stephen Lampart ambitious and a little vulgar. But this was prejudice, and prejudice is dangerous. After all, Stephen had been Hugo's best friend at Oxford. I knew I must be careful to betray as little as possible if this interview were to go the way I wanted. Stephen, there are two things we have to discuss, and there may not be another opportunity. Of course, Lady Ursula. Paul was murdered. The police will know that soon if they don't already. Forgive me, but can you be sure? All Barbara could tell me when she rang this morning was that the police had found Paul's body and that of a tramp, and that there were injuries to their throats. Their throats had been cut, both of them. And from the careful tact with which the news was broken to me, I imagine that the weapon was one of Paul's open razors. I suppose Paul was capable of killing himself. Most of us are given sufficient pain. But he most certainly was not capable of killing that tramp. No, my son was murdered. And that means there are certain facts the police will make it their business to discover. What facts, Lady Ursula? That you and my daughter-in-law are lovers. I see. Who told you that? Paul or Barbara? Neither. But I've lived in the same house with Barbara for four years. I may be crippled, but I have the use of my eyes and my intelligence. How is Barbara? How's she taking all this? I don't know. She's apparently too distressed to talk to visitors. Seems that I count as a visitor. Is that quite fair? Paul was her husband, and she did care for him. Perhaps more than either of us understand. Look, d do we have to talk now? We're both of us in shock. Yes, we have to talk, and there isn't much time. The policewoman who broke the news to me said that Commander Dalgleish is coming here as soon as they've finished with whatever they're doing at the church. Presumably he'll want to interview Barbara as well. In time, he'll get round to you. I have to know what it is you propose to tell them. This Dalgleish, isn't he some kind of a poet? An odd hobby for a policeman? 
If he's as good a detective as he is a poet, he's a dangerous man. Dangerous? I've no reason to fear the police. You aren't seriously suggesting that they'll suspect me of cutting Paul's throat because I go to bed with his wife? I'm not saying they'll suspect you, Stephen, but it will cause less trouble if neither of you lies about your relationship. I'd prefer not to have to lie about it myself. Naturally, I shan't volunteer information, but it is possible they'll ask. But why on earth should they do that, Lady Ursula? Because my son was a minister of the crown, and Commander Dalgleish will liaise with special branch. Do you suppose there's anything about a minister's private life which isn't known to these people? Of course, I should have thought of that. I don't think my mind is working properly yet. Then I suggest that it begins working. You and Barbara have to agree on your story. Better still, agree to tell the truth. I take it Barbara was your mistress when you first introduced her to Hugo, and that she remained your mistress after Hugo was killed, and she married Paul. Believe me, Lady Ursula, none of that was intended. It just happened. There's something you must understand. I may be her lover, but she doesn't love me. She'd never get rid of a perfectly good husband and a title to marry me, and certainly not by murder. You have to believe that. If you and she are going to go on living together, that at least was frank. You seem well suited to each other. Yes, we suit each other. She feels safe with me. That's why I suspect she doesn't feel particularly guilty. It's difficult to take adultery seriously when there's a marked lack of illicit pleasure. Your role in this relationship can hardly be satisfying. I admire your self-sacrifice. Oh, but she's so beautiful, and you see, Barbara adores attention. That's one thing you have to admit about sex. If nothing else, it's a guarantee of intense personal attention. But it ends there. No, if she thought I had a hand in killing Paul, she'd never forgive me, and she certainly wouldn't protect me. Who would she protect? Her brother, possibly, but not for long. She and Dominic have never been particularly close. Fortunately, no sibling loyalty will be demanded of her. Dominic Swain was here in this house with Matty for the whole of yesterday evening. Is that his story or hers? Are you accusing Dominic of having a hand in my son's death? Of course not. The idea is ridiculous. And if Matty says he was with her, I've no doubt he was. We all know that Matty is a model of rectitude. You said there were two things we needed to discuss. Yes, I'd like to be sure that the child Barbara is carrying is my grandchild, not your bastard. I see. Well, there's no possible doubt about that. I had a vasectomy three years ago, so rest assured, you don't really need a DNA test after he's born. He? Oh yes, it's a boy. Barbara had an amniocentesis. Paul wanted an heir, and he's going to get an heir. Did Paul know about the child before he died? Barbara hasn't said. I imagine not. After all, she's only just heard about the sex of the child herself. 
I rang and told her first thing yesterday morning. And now, if uh, you'll excuse me, I'll go down and see her before the police descend on her. She's alone, I take it? As far as I know. I've sent for Anthony Farrell, but he has to get up from Winchester. The family lawyer? Won't that look suspicious, having him here? He's a family friend as well as a lawyer. But I'm glad you're seeing her before he arrives. Tell her to answer Dalgleish's questions, but not to volunteer information. Too much candour looks as suspicious as too little. Oh, and um, tell her to say nothing about the child. That's important. If it's what you want. But it could be helpful to mention the pregnancy. She's not to mention it. If you're sure. In that case, I'll uh, go down to Barbara. One more thing. What do you know about Theresa Nolan? No more than you, I imagine. Probably less. She only worked at Pembroke Lodge for four weeks, and I hardly set eyes on her. She nursed you and lived in this house for over six. When she came to me, she was already pregnant. And Diana Travers? Nothing. Except that she was unwise enough to overeat, drink too much, and then dive into the Thames. As you must know, Barbara and I had left the Black Swan before she drowned. <laughs> Lady Ursula, I really don't think we should be complicating Paul's death with old, irrelevant tragedies. Are they both irrelevant? Incidentally, has Sarah been told? Not yet. Would you like me to go round? She is Paul's daughter, after all. This will be a terrible shock to her. She oughtn't to learn it from the police or through the media. She won't. If necessary, I'll go round myself. But who will drive you? Isn't Wednesday Halliwell's day off? There are taxis. After leaving the church, I went briefly back to the yard to pick up my files on Theresa Nolan and Diana Travers, and it was after midday that I arrived at the Barone family residence in Campden Hill Square. I'd left John Massingham to supervise what remained to be done at the church, and I'd brought Kate with me. It seemed more appropriate there were only women in the house, and it had been Kate who'd first broken the news to Lady Ursula. When I rang the doorbell, it was a full two minutes before the door was opened, and we faced a woman who I knew must be Evelyn Matlock. She was, I guessed, in her late thirties and uncompromisingly plain. A small, sharp nose, a primly censorious mouth, a receding chin. As she stood aside to let us enter, I remembered what Paul Barone had once told me about her. Here was a woman, whose father he had unsuccessfully defended, to whom he'd given a home and a job who was supposed to be devoted to him. If that were true... She was concealing her grief at his death with remarkable stoicism. I was accustomed to seeing apprehension, dislike, even hatred. But now, for a moment, what I saw in her eyes was naked fear. It passed almost at once and gave place to what seemed to me an assumed indifference. But it had been there. Commander Dalgleish and Detective Inspector Miskin are here, Lady Ursula. Without waiting for us to step into the room, she turned and left. We stood facing Lady Ursula Barone.
Lady Ursula Barone was sitting very upright, her back to the window. She didn't rise as we came in, but held out a hand as Kate introduced me. Please, sit down. If uh, Inspector Miskin has to make notes, she may find that chair by the window convenient. Perhaps you will sit opposite me, Commander. As I sat where she indicated, I saw that her chair was specially designed for the disabled. A control in the armrest raised the seat to help her stand. Its functional modernity struck a discordant note in a room otherwise cluttered with 18th-century furniture. Another modern feature was the paperback lying on the round table to her right. I saw that it was Philip Larkin's required writing. She held it up. Mr. Larkin was a librarian as well as a poet. <laughs> Unusual, perhaps, but not wholly inappropriate. To be a poet and a policeman seems to me eccentric, even perverse. Do you see the poetry harming the detection or the detection harming the poetry? Well, it's the poetry, I assume, that must suffer. One could scarcely settle down to writing poetry in the middle of a case. <laughs> so far, I've never felt the need to do so. Perhaps the human mind can deal with only one intense experience at a time. You must excuse me. Being interrogated by a detective is a new experience. May I say that Inspector Miskin broke the news to me with tact and consideration. But all she told me was that my son was dead and that there were certain wounds. I've made assumptions about his death, Commander, but would you tell me precisely what happened? His throat was cut. As I thought. The tramp with him, Harry Mack, died the same way. And the weapon? A blood-stained open razor was close to your son's right hand. The razor was his. Yes. I understand that the door to the church, the, the vestry or wherever he was, was open? Yes. Miss Wharton, who discovered the bodies together with the young boy, says she found it unlocked. And are you treating this as suicide? Oh, no. I'm treating it as double murder. The tramp Harry Mack didn't kill himself. I don't think your son did either. But it's too early to say more. We must wait for the post-mortems and the forensic tests. Now, there are some questions I need to ask. When did you last see Sir Paul? At eight o'clock yesterday morning. He always brought me my breakfast tray. No doubt he wished to reassure himself that I had survived the night. Did he tell you then, or at any time, that he intended returning to St Matthews? No. We didn't discuss his plans for the day, only mine. Did any other members of the household know that Sir Paul intended revisiting St Matthews yesterday evening? I don't know, but I think it unlikely. We have only a small staff. Evelyn Matlock, whom you've met, is the housekeeper. Then there's Gordon Halliwell. He's an ex-sergeant in the guards, and he served with my elder son, Hugo. I suppose he'd call himself a chauffeur handyman. He came here just over five years ago, before Hugo was killed, and stayed on. He has a flat over the garage. He drove Sir Paul? Rarely. Before he resigned, Paul used his ministerial car or drove himself. No, Halliwell drives me... He takes me out almost daily. Sometimes he drives my daughter-in-law. But you'll have to wait to speak to him. Today's his day off. 
Any other staff? Only one. Mrs. Iris Minns. She comes here four days a week to do general housework. Miss Matlock can give you her address. This religious experience of your son's in the vestry of St. Matthew's, did he talk to you about it? No, he wouldn't have expected me to sympathise. I'm not a religious woman. His alleged experience in that church is inexplicable, and he didn't try to explain it. Not to me, anyway. In the last few seconds, she had been overcome with exhaustion, and her gnarled hands began very gently to shake. But I controlled my compassion as she was controlling her grief. I took from my case the half-burnt diary, still in its protective transparent wrapping. Would you please take a look at this, Lady Ursula? I'd like you to confirm that this diary is in fact Sir Paul's. Please don't unwrap it. Yes, this is his. But it's simply a record of engagements. It can't be of any importance. Then why should he or anyone else wish to burn it? And there's another oddity. The top half of the last page has been torn away. Shows the calendar for last year and this. Can you recall what else, if anything, was on that page? I can't remember that I ever saw that page. When and where did you last see the diary? I'm afraid that's the kind of detail it's impossible for me to remember. There's really only one more matter. Is there anything you can tell me about the two young women who died after they'd been working in this house? Teresa Nolan and Diana Travers? Very little, I'm afraid. Teresa Nolan was a gentle, considerate nurse who helped me over a bad attack of sciatica for about six weeks. She had a room in this house, but she was on duty only at night. When she left, she took a post in a maternity nursing home in Hampstead. And she became pregnant while working here? Probably. But I can assure you that no one in this house was responsible. And Diana Travers? I know even less about her. She was an unemployed actress doing domestic work while resting. I think that's the euphemism they use. Miss Matlock took her on to replace a cleaning woman who'd left. You know why I am asking about these two women? Of course. One or two of my friends made it their business to send me the cutting about my son from the Paternoster Review. I'm surprised that the police should trouble themselves with what is surely no more than cheap journalistic spite. Now, if that is all, Commander, perhaps you would like to see my daughter-in-law. She insisted on escorting Kate and me down to the drawing room two floors below, here, Sir Paul's widow, Barbara, was waiting to receive us, her lawyer, Anthony Farrell, at her side. Lady Ursula briefly introduced us and left. Lady Barone, when did you last see your husband? Not after 9.15 yesterday morning. I left for a hair appointment about half past ten. Then I did some shopping and had lunch in Knightsbridge. I came back in the middle of the afternoon, changed and took a taxi to Pembroke Lodge. That's my cousin's nursing home in Hampstead. He's an obstetrician, Mr. Stephen Lampart. He drove me to dinner at the Black Swan in Cookham, and I was with him till midnight. That's when he brought me home. When you saw Sir Paul that morning, did he tell you how he proposed spending the day? No. But couldn't you look in his diary? He keeps it in his desk drawer in the study. We found the diary, or what remained of it, in the vestry with the two bodies. Good God. 
It was mutilated and someone had tried to burn it. So we need to find out what he was doing some other way. I'd hoped you could help. But does it matter? I mean, how does it help to know that he went to the estate agent a few hours before he was killed? Did he? He said he had an appointment. Did he say which one? No, and I didn't ask. I suppose God told him to sell the house. I don't think he told him which estate agent to use. It was at this point that Anthony Farrell intervened. He told me that he himself had been expecting to see Sir Paul the previous afternoon. Sir Paul had wanted to discuss certain financial arrangements following his decision to give up his parliamentary career, but he'd rung in the morning to rearrange the meeting for today. Now, as the family solicitor, Farrell said that once it was proved that Sir Paul had been murdered, he'd have to proceed to settle his affairs. But what is there to settle? Paul left everything to me. He told me so. The house too. It's quite straightforward. I'm his widow. It's all mine. And the house alone, I thought, must be worth millions. I recalled, as I so often did, the words of an old detective sergeant when I'd been a newly appointed D.C. Love, lust, loathing, lucre. The four L's of murder. And the greatest of these is lucre. At that moment, the door burst open and a young man flung himself across the room. Barbie, darling. Matty rang me with the news. It's awful. Unbelievable. Darling, how are you? Are you all right? May I introduce my brother, Dominic? Dominic Swain, Commander Dalgleish. Short and broad-shouldered, he had nothing of his sister's classical beauty. Nor, despite his expensive Italian jacket and handmade brogues, did he convey her impression of effortless elegance. What happened, Barbie? Who did it? Do you know? He's acting, I thought. This isn't genuine. But then I had second thoughts. Shock and grief affect people in odd ways. But I didn't miss Barbara Brown's small shudder as his arms went round her shoulders. Shock or mild revulsion? I turned to him. As you are here, Mr. Swain, perhaps you'd answer one or two questions. When did you last see support? Oh, do you know? Can't remember. Not for some weeks, anyway. Actually, I was in the house all yesterday evening, but Evelyn, Miss Matlock, wasn't expecting him back for dinner. She said he'd left in the morning and no one knew where he'd gone. When did you arrive? Just before seven. Stayed till just after ten-thirty, then went over to the local pub, the Raj, for a last drink. They remember me there. I was one of the last to leave. And you were here the whole time? Yes. Could Sir Paul have returned to the house while you were here? I suppose so. It doesn't seem likely. I was having a bath for about an hour. That's mainly why I came. He might have come back then. I think Miss Matlock would have mentioned it. I'm sharing digs at the moment. There's only a shower, and that's in the loo. So I've taken to turning up here for the occasional bath and a meal. Our last interview that afternoon at Camden Hill Square was with Miss Matlock. She showed us where Sir Paul kept his diary, but couldn't explain how it came to be found in the vestry of St Matthew's. She said that the previous morning Sir Paul had prepared a picnic lunch for himself in the kitchen before leaving at about ten o'clock. She hadn't known he was going to St Matthew's Church, and she hadn't seen him since. She said that Sarah, Sir Paul's daughter, had called her in the afternoon to see her grandmother, but that Lady Ursula had been out. She confirmed Dominic Swain's account of how he'd spent the previous evening. As we were being driven back to the yard, I rang John Massingham. This lad, Darren Wilkes... Did you find out anything about him, John? I took him home, as you said, sir. By God, what a place of right shambles. His mother was flat out on the bed. Drink or drugs or both, I couldn't get a word out of her. 
The boy's clearly been stealing, left, right and centre. His room was piled high with all sorts, a lot of it food. Can't blame him, poor mite. What did you do? Rang the juvenile bureau. The lad was terrified they'd put him in a home. Why can't I go home with Miss Wharton, he kept saying. But I, I told him all they'd do was send someone round to look after him. A PC arrived after a bit. She'll stay till his mother can take over. Good. Now, any news of Barone's daughter? Sarah. Uh, yes, sir. She's a professional photographer. Pretty busy until tomorrow evening. I've arranged for us to go round at 6.30. It's Sarah. Thank God I've reached you. Iva, I have to see you. You've heard? Just now on the six o'clock news. Have the police been in touch with you? They've been trying to get me, but I told them I was tied up until tomorrow evening. And are you? Not exactly. How many times have I told you? Never lie to the police unless you're sure they can't find out. They've only got to check your diary. But I couldn't let them come until we'd spoken. There are things they might ask. About Teresa Nolan. About Diana. Either we have to meet. Go to the flat. I'll be round shortly. And don't worry. I'll be with you tomorrow when the police come. Oh, and Sarah. Yes. Yes, I'm here. We were together the whole of yesterday evening. From six o'clock when I arrived from work. We ate in the flat. We stayed together all night. Get that into your mind. Start concentrating on it now. We were together the whole time. Got it? I'll be with you in half an hour. It was just before ten, and John Massingham and I were thinking of locking up our papers for the night when Lady Ursula rang. I apologise for telephoning so late, Commander, but Halliwell has returned home, and I should be grateful if the police could see him now. Tomorrow will be a busy day for both of us, and I'm not sure when he could be available. The door was opened by a resentful Miss Matlock in a long, flowered dressing gown. We followed her through the house and out to the cobbled yard that led to two large garages. The doors of the left-hand one were open, and in the glare of the fluorescent lights we could see a black Vauxhall and a white VW parked neatly side by side, with room for a third car. The entrance to Halliwell's flat was by way of an iron staircase leading up the side of the garage wall. A man's bicycle was propped against it. Miss Matlock left us, and we were making our way down the side of the Vauxhall when the door above opened, and Gordon Halliwell was silhouetted against the light broad-shouldered and stocky. He invited us in, and we accepted his offer of coffee. He told us he knew that Sir Paul used a cutthroat razor, and that the diary was kept in the top right-hand drawer of Sir Paul's desk. But he couldn't remember when he'd last seen the razors or the diary. He hadn't been told that Sir Paul would be visiting the church the previous evening. He himself had been in the flat from 5.40 until just after 10, when he'd left to visit the widow of one of his comrades killed in action. He told us that Lady Ursula had phoned twice during the evening, once at about eight to discuss arrangements for the coming week, and again about 9.15 to remind him that he could use the Vauxhall that evening because his own car was in for servicing. Is there any chance that someone from the house or from outside could have taken out a car without your knowing? Halliwell asserted that it would have been impossible. 
he'd have heard the garage being unlocked. To be absolutely clear, I said, last night, from 5.40, until you left for the country shortly after 10, you were here alone in the flat and the garage door was bolted. We'd have to check that country visit of his, I was thinking. When suddenly we heard someone coming through the garage, a moment later the door was flung open and Dominic Swain stood in the entrance. Oh, my God, sorry, sorry. I'm always bursting in when the police are doing their stuff. I only came about borrowing the VW tomorrow. Don't worry, Mr Swain, we're just leaving. But as we're here, perhaps we could ask you about one or two matters. In the main house, do you think? Just to confirm, sir, you were here in the house the whole of last evening from the time you arrived, just before seven, till you left for the Raj at 10.30. That's right, Inspector. Clever of you to remember. I admit I'm hardly everyone's favourite brother-in-law, but I had nothing to do with Paul's death. Actually, I don't see why Paul resented me so much. I admit I bath and eat at his expense occasionally. He's hardly on the breadline. And an occasional game of Scrabble with poor Evelyn can't have bothered him. But I didn't slit his throat for him. I'm not in the least bloodthirsty. I'm not like Halliwell, trained to creep about among the rocks with my face blackened and a knife between my teeth. That's not my idea of amusement. You prefer an evening's scrabble with your lady friend. Who won? Oh, Evelyn. She usually does. 382 points to my 200. If she weren't so depressingly honest, I'd suspect her of cheating. Anyway, you wanted to ask me something, Commander? Tell us about Diana Travers. What about her? She's dead. We know that. She died after a dinner party given by you at the Black Swan. Tell us about it. Why did you invite her? Call it a generous impulse. I knew my dear sister was having what she described as an intimate dinner party at the Black Swan for her birthday. Too intimate to invite me, apparently. So I thought I'd organise a little celebration of my own. Diana happened to be around, so I asked her to join us. What happened after the meal? We went out to the river bank found this punt moored upstream. The rest of them thought it would be fun to mess about on the river. Diana and I decided to have our fun on the bank. Afterwards, we thought we'd swim out to the punt and bob up beside them. Having first taken off your clothes? They were already off. Sorry if I shock you, Inspector. You dived in first? Waded in. Then I'd struck out and reached the punt. I looked back for Diana, but I couldn't see her. So I struck back for the bank. She wasn't there, but her clothes were. It was then I became scared. And then the body surfaced right by the punt. They struck it with the punt pole. So they held her head above water and paddled to the bank. I helped drag her out. She just lay there, eyes staring. We tried mouth to mouth for a bit, and one of the girls ran to the restaurant for help. No good. End of Diana. End of a jolly evening. Did you know much about her? Tell you one thing I found out. She wasn't an actress. She told me on the way to the Black Swan, no equity card, no drama school. Did she say what her job really was? She said she was working her way through a creative writing course. She was gathering material. And no one asks why you want a temporary job when you say you're on the stage. I can't say I cared one way or the other. Kate? Past your bedtime, isn't it? Where are you? Back in the office, sir. 
I wanted to tell you, I've spoken to the pair who look after Father Barnes, Mr. and Mrs. McBride, sort of housekeeper and handyman. They both swear that when they passed St. Matthew's last night on the way to the pub, it was just after eight, water was fairly gushing out of the drain pipe. Mrs. McBride remembers saying to her husband, that's Father Barnes having a strip wash in the vestry. Excellent, Kate. I reckon that more or less pinpoints the time of the murders. We know the murderer had a lot of blood to wash off. Look, John and I aren't coming back. Let's call it a day. It was after 11.30 when I clanged the lift door behind me and turned the key in the security lock of my flat. It was the only place I'd ever thought of as home. My mother had died three days after I was born, and if my gran, who brought me up, knew who my father was, she never told me. Miskin was my mother's name, and my gran's. It had taken a long time, but finally I'd escaped from my grandmother, from the dirty, noisy estate, the graffiti, the broken lifts, the stink of urine. This flat, on the top floor of Victorian block, was my private world. No one was allowed in. No one, that is, except for Alan. I switched on the lights, drew the heavy linen curtains and phoned him. We'd planned to see a film the following night, but this was no longer possible. It was pointless to make any plans until the case was finished. Alan took the news calmly, as he always did when I had to break a date. Well, good luck with the case, he said. I hope it won't be love's labours lost. I didn't get it. Barone, he explained. Interesting name. Barone was a lord in Shakespeare's play. I was getting ready for bed when I saw there was a message on the answer phone. Kate, I heard, this is Joe Mason, your grandmother's social worker. There's been some trouble. Mrs Miskin went to collect her pension this afternoon and when she came back she found a window smashed. Please ring me as soon as you get in. If it's after 5.30, would you ring your grand direct? This is really urgent. Oh, there you are, was Gran's greeting when I rang. Fine time to call. You all right, Gran? Of course I'm not bloody all right. When you coming round? I'll try to look in tomorrow, but it won't be easy. I'm in the middle of a case. Better come at three. Mrs Mason says she'll look in at three. She wants to see you, special. Three o'clock, mind. And she put the phone down. I thought, oh, God. I can't cope with this again, not now. Not just at the beginning of a new case. I'd done everything possible to make my grandmother independent to avoid having her come to live with me. But that, I knew, was what my grandmother, in alliance with her social worker, was inexorably pressing me to accept. I couldn't do it. I couldn't give up my freedom. I couldn't give up Alan. I had a right to my own life. Pembroke Lodge was a low, elegant Edwardian villa in Hampstead, in its own grounds, set well back from the road. Although on the staff of two major London teaching hospitals, this was Stephen Lampard's personal domain, and I had no doubt, a highly profitable one. I know, of course, why you're here. Lady Barone phoned me soon after she'd heard the news, and I called at the house. I wanted to offer what help I could to her and to Lady Ursula. This really is an appalling business. Are you any clearer yet what exactly happened? Both their throats were cut. We don't yet know why or by whom. I see. So, what do you want of me, Commander? I'd like you to talk to us about Sir Paul. We need to know as much about him as possible. 
I don't think I can give you much help. I suppose he must have had political enemies, but they're not the sort to go in for murder. Unless... You have someone in mind, sir? No, no, Inspector. I was thinking, possibly, of someone on the radical fringes of society. But it's more than unlikely. It's ridiculous. Sarah, his daughter, strongly disliked his politics. But I've absolutely no reason to suppose that the set she's mixed up with, or even her radical boyfriend, would go in for razor-slashing. What set is that? Oh, some extremist revolutionary outfit. The exact name escapes me. And the boyfriend, sir? Who is he? Ivor Garrod, leading member of Renter Mob. I've only met him once. Sarah brought him to dinner about five months ago, principally, I imagine, to annoy Papa. A ghastly occasion. From what he said, the violence he advocates is on a somewhat grander scale than merely cutting the throat of a single Tory ex-minister. When did you last see Sir Paul Barone? About six weeks ago. Actually, I was hoping to see him this week. I wanted to discuss his decision to drop out of public life. I was concerned for Lady Barone. Barbara. She's my cousin. We've known each other since childhood. I have an interest. How strong an interest? I don't want to marry her, if that's what you're implying. For the past few years I've been her lover as well as her cousin. You could call that a strong interest, I suppose. Did her husband know? I've no idea. Anyway, he was hardly in a position to object. He had a mistress, as I've no doubt you've discovered. Or haven't you grubbed out that piece of dirt yet? I'm interested to know how you managed to grub it out. Barbara told me of her suspicions about eighteen months ago, and I got hold of a suitably discreet private detective on her behalf, and had him followed. She just wanted to know. I don't think she saw the woman as a serious rival. Actually, I suspect she was quite pleased. It gave her something to hold over Paul if the need arose, and of course it freed her from the disagreeable necessity of sleeping with him regularly. We shall, of course, need to know this woman's name and address. Of course, Commander, and I may say the information made very little difference to Barbara. She didn't lock her bedroom door against her husband. Barbara liked an occasional assurance that he was still suitably enthralled. I wondered whether his willingness to talk so freely arose from arrogance, or whether there was a more sinister motive. Lampart wouldn't be the first murderer to believe that if you told the police details they had no right to demand, they'd be less likely to suspect other, more dangerous secrets. There was an almost unbroken stream of traffic past the front gate of Pembroke Lodge, and I had to wait before it was safe to filter in. I spent the time wondering just how Adam Dalgleish did it, how he'd managed to extract so much information from Stephen Lampart. Where had A.D. been so clever?
Did you enjoy yourself, Kate? Yes, sir. I must admit it. I like the sense of being in control. Is that wrong? No. No one joins the police without getting some enjoyment out of exercising power. The danger begins when the pleasure becomes an end in itself. That's when it's time to think about getting another job. I'm only sorry we got so little about Teresa Nolan out of him. This dinner at the Black Swan, sir. You and Lady Barone were there, both of you, on the evening of the 7th of August, when Diana Travers drowned. You obviously know we were. It was Lady Barone's 27th birthday party. And you escorted her, not her husband. He was expected to join us later, but rang to say he couldn't make it. Since you know so much, you must also know that we left before the tragedy. And that other tragedy, sir, Theresa Nolan. You weren't, of course, present when that happened either. If you mean, did I sit by her side in Holland Park while she swallowed a bottle of distal Jesic tablets? No, I wasn't. She left a note, making it plain that she'd killed herself because of guilt over her abortion. She was one of your nurses here. I wonder why she didn't have the operation at Pembroke Lodge. I wouldn't have done it. I don't operate on my own staff. Actually, I can't see how her death or that of Diana Travers has anything to do with Sir Paul's death. Ought we to be wasting time with irrelevant questions? Not irrelevant. Sir Paul received letters suggesting that he was somehow connected with these two deaths. I see. Well, I knew absolutely nothing of the Travers girl except that she worked in the Barone house as a part-time domestic and that she was at the Black Swan on the night of the birthday party. As for Theresa Nolan, she came here after nursing Lady Ursula. She had a midwifery qualification and she was perfectly satisfactory. She must have got pregnant when she was working in the Barone house. But I didn't ask by whom and, well, she never said. Did it occur to you that the child could have been Sir Paul's? Yes, it occurred to me. It occurred to a lot of people. What happened when she discovered she was pregnant? She came and told me she wanted a termination. I referred her to a psychiatrist and left him to make the necessary arrangements. After the operation, she came back here. A week later, well, you know what happened. He had the means. Mm. He could have stopped off at the church on the way to the Black Swan, leaving Lady Barone in the car. He had the knowledge, he had the motive. I don't think he wanted to marry the lady, but he certainly didn't want an impoverished mistress. Mm. And heaven knows what Sir Paul was planning to do with his money following that religious conversion of his. But Lampard's a doctor. There are more subtle methods available to him than throat slitting. But killing without arousing suspicion isn't easy, sir, even for a doctor. And if he could have pulled this off, it would have been the perfect murder. It wouldn't have even been considered murder. It was Harry Mack who did for him. Without that second killing, wouldn't we have taken it at its face value as suicide? Except for the mistake of half-burning the diary and taking away the matches. In some ways, the clue of that half-burnt match is the most interesting in the case. How do you think it happened, sir? The murderer must have known there'd be a lot of blood. I think he was naked when he killed, naked to the waist at least, so that he could wash it away afterwards. There was no sign of a struggle, so Sir Paul could have been pulled down by something slipped around his neck, a scarf, a 
towel, even a noose of some sort, and half-throttled. Wouldn't that leave a mark? Not necessarily. Not when he'd finished his butchery. Then Harry Mack appears. Something of a shock, I imagine. So he has to be dealt with. Then to the washroom for a sluice down, back into his clothes, then, last of all, he burns the diary, and perhaps out of habit, slips the matchbox into his pocket. A simple mistake, which rules out suicide completely. A half-burnt match, and no trace of the box it came from. Sarah Barone lived in a gaunt Victorian terrace of five-storey houses on the Cromwell Road. She was, I knew, only in her early twenties, but she looked much older. She gave a nod of acknowledgement as I introduced Kate, then stood aside and motioned us across the hall and into the sitting room. And we found ourselves facing Ivor Garrett, his features already familiar to us from the files lying on my desk in the office. You're here about my father's death, of course. I don't think I can help much, can I, Ivor? Sarah hasn't seen him or spoken to him for over three months. But Miss Matlock says she was at Camden Hill Square on Tuesday afternoon. Yes, to see my grandmother. I wanted to find out what was happening. You know, my father's resignation, that business about his experience in the church. But she was out and I didn't wait. I left about 4.30. Did you go into the study? The study? Oh, I suppose you're thinking of his diary. I was in the study, but I didn't see it. But you knew where he kept it? Of course, in the desk drawer. We all knew that. Why do you ask? In the hope that you might have seen it. It would have been useful to know that it was there at 4.30. We can't trace your father's movements after he left a Kensington estate agent at half past 11. We don't even know what happened, except what Sarah has learned from her grandmother. Was it murder? Oh, I don't think there can be any doubt that this is a murder case. The tramp, Harry Mack, certainly didn't slit his own throat. His death may not be of shattering significance, but no doubt his life had some importance, at least to him. If you're asking us to provide an alibi for Harry Mack's murder, then we were here together from six o'clock on Tuesday until nine o'clock on Wednesday morning. We had supper here. A mushroom flan, if you want the details. But, Daddy, what happened to Daddy? We're treating it as a suspicious death. I can't say much more until we get the result of the post-mortem and the forensic tests. So your father didn't see you or write to you? He didn't explain what happened in that church or why he was giving up his job and his parliamentary seat? I don't suppose he thought I cared one way or the other. My God, he couldn't even get converted like an ordinary man. He had to be granted his own personal beatification. Does that matter? Not to me. I suppose Grandmama minds, and his wife, of course. She thought she was marrying the next Prime Minister but one. She wouldn't relish being tied to a religious crank. Well, she's free of him now. And he's free of us. All of us. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I... Don't mind me. I'll be all right in a minute. Could any more questions wait until another time? Miss Barone is upset. I can see that. If she wants us to leave, of course we shall. You go, either. I'm all right. You've said what you came to say. You were here with me on Tuesday night, all night. We were together. And there's nothing you can say about my father. You never knew him. So why don't you go? As you wish. If you need me, just ring. Just a moment. 
Diana Travers and Teresa Nolan. What do you know about them? Only that they're both dead. I do occasionally see the Paternoster Review. The recent article about Sir Paul was partly based on a scurrilous note sent to him and others. Kate? This note, Mr. Garrett. You aren't surely suggesting that Barone cut his throat because someone sent him an unkind letter? No. I was merely wondering whether you or Miss Barone had any idea who could have sent it. I admit I took for granted that the child Teresa Nolan aborted was Barone's. I didn't feel called upon to do anything about it. I only met the girl once at an unfortunate dinner party at Campton Hill Square. Lady Ursula was brought up to know which room people are entitled to dine in. Nurse Nolan was eating out of her station and was made to feel it. Not intentionally. Oh, I didn't say it was intentional. Women like your grandmother are offensive merely by existing. Yes, John? There's been a development, sir. Harrow Road have just been on the phone. A couple walked into the station ten minutes ago, a 21-year-old and his girl. They say they were on the towpath on Tuesday evening and passed through the turnstile by St Matthew's just before seven. There was a large black Vauxhall parked outside the south door. I knew Ivor would come back that night. I walked out onto the balcony, gazed out into the darkness, and made myself think about my father. I could recall the precise moment things changed between us. We'd been living in Chelsea, just my parents, myself and Matty. The phone call came at seven o'clock on a misty August morning. I answered the phone in the hall and was given the news just as my father came down the stairs. He saw my face and stopped. His hand on the banister. I looked up at him. It's Uncle Hugo's colonel, Daddy. Hugo's dead. Our eyes met and held for a moment, and I saw it clearly. The mixture of exultation and wild hope. The knowledge that now he could have Barbara. It lasted only a second. Time moved on. But nothing afterwards could ever be the same between us. Everything that followed, the car accident, my mother's death, his marriage to Barbara less than five months later, all seemed only the inevitable consequence of that moment. It was after eleven before Ivor arrived, and I was very tired. He wasted no time on preliminaries. Wasn't very clever, was it? Allowing yourself to be left alone with probably the most dangerous detective in London and his fascist sidekick. It wasn't like that. They were quite human. You haven't any idea what the police are like. Just get it into your head. Dalgleish knows you'll come into a fair amount of money. He knows you've got a lover who doesn't care a damn about this rotten society and would like to get his hands on that legacy. So he's got a motive and a very satisfactory suspect. Just what the establishment are hoping for. Now he can get down to fabricating the evidence. You don't really believe that? For heaven's sake, Sarah. There's only one way with the police. Tell them nothing. I suppose if I'm actually arrested, you'll let me tell them where I really was on Tuesday night. I'm not sure I oughtn't to tell them anyway. Tell them what? The code names of 11 people whose real names and addresses you don't even know? Point them to a semi where they'll find nothing incriminating. 
the moment a policeman sets foot in the safe house, the cell is disbanded, reformed, rehoused. We're not fools. What's more, there is a procedure for treachery. What procedure? Throwing me in the Thames? Slitting my throat? Don't be ridiculous. Ivor, where were you on Tuesday night? You have never been late for a cell meeting before. There was a hold-up on the tube, I explained at the time. I wasn't at St Matthew's cutting your father's throat, if that's what you're implying. And until this case is over, we better not meet. If necessary, I'll get in touch with you in the usual way. Mystery Radio presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening. <laughs>